And water, uh, uneven access to drinking water in this country is something most Canadians are not aware of. Living in cities and towns, we turn on the tap and we don't think about the health of our water, the safety of our water. Uh, we don't have to because it is being looked after through a modern drinking water distribution system. But that's not the case in First Nation communities. And so many Canadians don't understand that or know that. So we have a water insecurity problem in the global north, so-called developed world. And it's our First Nations that experience that on a regular basis. Hi everyone, welcome back to Let's Talk About Water. I'm your host, Jay Familietti. Now, wherever you're from, you've probably heard of or experienced some kind of water advisory. Maybe you were told not to use the tap water for a few hours because something in your local water treatment plant broke, or maybe there was a lot of algae in the lake where your water comes from. But usually, it's cleared up in a few hours, maybe a day. Well, here in Canada, there are First Nations that are currently under long-term drinking water advisories, meaning that for over a year, that's right, a full year, these communities have been advised to either boil, not drink, or not use water at all from their taps. And some have been under boil water advisories even longer. The Neskatonga First Nation in Northern Ontario has been on a water advisory for 26 years. But from the outside, the problem may appear to have a simple fix, just build some water treatment plants. But with a new water treatment plant comes water treatment operators who need support operating new treatment plants on top of the frequent maintenance and repairs required to keep the systems up. And what if the water entering our plants upstream is already contaminated. What then? Plans need to be in place to make sure the source water is protected now and into the future. Well, today we're speaking with two guests, Bob Patrick and Dion Hasler, about several of these issues. We're talking about being involved in decision-making, mentorship, and support for First Nations water treatment plant operators. We're talking about how community source water protection plans can contribute to ending long-term water advisories. And we're talking about what the future of drinking water looks like in Indigenous communities across Canada. First, let's turn to Bob Patrick. Bob Patrick is a professor in the Department of Geography and Planning at the University of Saskatchewan, and he's an expert in source water protection. Bob, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jay. Thank you very much. Bob, can you tell us how you would describe source water protection? Sure. To me, it's, it's almost a social science process where we begin with first talking about planning. Uh, it's about having a community empowered to know that they can actually develop a plan to protect their source of water. Many communities don't realize uh, they have the ability to do that. So the process is really to start with a working committee to pull together people from that community maybe some water experts, uh, scientists, but really pulling together people who want to be part of a, an ongoing process. And then doing an assessment of your water system, uh, looking at how many connections are there, 
What is the source of the water? Uh, what are the land use activities that are going on in your watershed or around the aquifer? And then identifying those risks and coming up with management actions to lessen those risks. We might not be able to eliminate the risk, but we, we can often reduce those risks. It's interesting that you describe it as a social science problem because it really, you know, in the big picture really is. We've really become disconnected from understanding where our water comes from. It's same with food, right? You go into a grocery store and, you know, there's a banana. And so same thing with water. We turn on the tap and, and there it is. And we don't understand the pathways. And, and of course, you know, source water protection, you know, fits fantastically, you know, these days into nature-based solutions. We should have been doing it anyway, but really need to raise awareness. Let's turn to the First Nations situation. How, how do we get to this point with 58 different drinking water advisories in First Nations communities in Canada? How do we get here? Well, that's a giant question. There's so many layers. In some instances, it's, it's poor water. It's just, you know, the water quality is, is just poor. In other instances, the water treatment facilities that were put in place decades ago were insufficient to address the water conditions in place. There's been poor engineering, uh, poor designs. There have been contracts let that were not fulfilled. There's been a lot of hands-off management from, I'll say, Ottawa. There are situate, many situations where there is no distribution system. So the houses are, are not connected to a distribution system and uh, trucks are running around the community delivering water when that water is, in fact, often contaminated in the truck. There's burdens put on the First Nations that are just unmanageable. Many that I've visited are doing their very best. In fact, often they're doing just heroic jobs in keeping the systems running. Uh, trucks that are running 24-7 to deliver water to households. But when they deliver the water off to Jay, the cisterns, the in-ground cisterns are cracked. Uh, they've been put in place in the 1980s. They're, they're concrete often. So with freeze-thaw cycles on the prairie, they're cracked, they're broken. Lids are broken off. And so there's contaminants, dirt, and animals in the water. It's just a poor system that was set up in many cases, not in all cases, but in many cases, it was a poor system, a poor design, and then it wasn't maintained. They're being maintained by the First Nation, but they're not getting an infusion of funds to replace the cisterns. It's so complicated. Um, I understand now what you mean about there being so many levels of the problem, you know, when you try to reverse engineer to figure out what went wrong. So with all that in mind, then, what are some of the next steps? What can be done to resolve these advisories? I think source water protection is, is a, a good first step. I mean, source water protection is the first barrier, recognized as the first barrier in the multi-barrier approach. Um, I think in the past with First Nations and Métis communities and with all communities, we've thought about the water just coming in and treating it and sending it out and everything will be fine. And we really uh, have not thought deeply enough about where that water is coming from. I mean, really, what would a water system be without a watershed, uh, without a groundwater supply? So it all starts with the source. I think we've forgotten that as Canadians. We've, we've thought about just building a treatment plant. And certainly in First Nation communities, federal government's approach has been, we'll build our way out of this problem. They'll just throw money at a treatment plant, uh, which you do need. You do need good water treatment. But you can't just start with the treatment. You have to back up and look at where is this water coming from and how are we protecting this water in the first place. What do you see in the future in terms of 
source water protection planning, and your own research? Well, I think the future is right now. Indigenous communities, First Nation and Métis communities are actually leading the way in this country in source water protection. Um, I mean, I've assisted with a number of these uh, in the Prairie region, Alberta, in BC. There are probably more source water protection plans right now in First Nation communities than in municipalities. First Nations know, understand, and appreciate the ability to go out and do source water protection. Indigenous people have been planning on the landscape for, for centuries. And so the idea of protecting water is not something new to First Nations. It's new to many Canadians, but it's not new to Indigenous people. I see the future of Indigenous people continuing to lead the way doing source water protection. Dealing with abandoned wells is a problem, Jay. There's, there's many, many abandoned wells on the landscape and the prairies. Uh, these are old farmsteads or just old water sources that are now abandoned, but they weren't properly decommissioned. Landfills are a big problem on the prairie. Um, you know, Saskatchewan has more unofficial, I guess, illegal landfills than the rest of Canada combined. Many of these are on First Nation communities. Federal government uh, asked First Nations to build landfills. So uh, the, the method was to dig a hole. And when it's full, I uh, just dig another hole. And so the First Nations didn't create the problem, uh, but they're having to live with that problem uh, of that type of landfill system. So decommissioning these wells uh, or decommissioning these landfills is uh, an important piece, and that's going on right now, putting in transfer stations so they can clean up these landfill uh, problems. Um, just planning, just having good land use plans and, and identifying where you want to put new wells, protecting those wellheads. Uh, building fences around wells to uh, keep animals and people away from their source of well water. Now, you're a scientific advisor of the Safe Drinking Water team, which sounds a little bit like a superhero squad. How would you describe the work of the Safe Drinking Water team? Well, I mean, they are a superhero squad. And, and I'm glad you brought this up, Jake, because I think this is one important phase or step that will help point in the direction of resolving the water problem in this country for Indigenous people. And the Safe Drinking Water team really just took it upon themselves after years and decades of frustration of fitting between different regulations. Federally, we, we don't have uh, standards. We have guidelines in this country. Uh, so trying to follow those guidelines, but also trying to fit into provincial standards. And First Nations and Métis communities falling between and not sure which guideline or which standard to be following. The Safe Drinking Water team decided that they would develop their own standards, uh, sort of an Indigenous uh, drinking water quality standard. And so they looked at some of the best qualities, provincial and federal, and pulled together standards that would work best for their communities. That's so interesting. I've never really heard about a community coming together to set its own standards. But, you know, if someone else isn't going to do it for you, then you're not left with many options. So, yeah, they are superheroes. Well, so I'm glad you, you brought that up, Bob, because, in fact, our next guest is Dion Hassler, and he uh, is actually a member of the Safe Drinking Water team. Dion Hassler is a circuit rider trainer for the File Hills Capel Tribal Council. He's responsible for 11 First Nations bands in terms of technical services for mentoring, training, and assisting water treatment operators in operating and maintaining their systems. Hi, Dion. How's it going? Oh, doing really good. Good. Now, you're a member of the Safe Drinking Water team. How would you describe the work of that team? 
Um, we're trying to find different approaches to training. We're just trying to figure out a way that we can make it better and be more appropriate for our needs in First Nation communities because, like I said, it just really hasn't been there. Our water quality in our communities are just really poor, so we just want to try to find a way to improve things. We've done a lot of research already and put it, we're put it together. My big part of the association is education. How can we educate the operators at Chief of Council? Dion, can you tell me about some of the changes you've seen in water treatment during your career? Oh, the biological systems that we, uh, we've had them in a, one of our communities here. It was one of the first uh, water plants that were built, it was biological 2002. And over the past years, we've uh, actually had about over 25 water plants in Saskatchewan, but they're biological plants. And uh, we've proven that they can work with the high iron levels, high iron, magnesium, ammonia levels that we have. They work. I mean, I'm having issues with green sand and uh, RO systems. And when you talk about RO, you're talking about reverse osmosis, right? So, you know, pushing the water through some kind of a membrane to filter out the bad stuff. Reverse osmosis and membrane treatment. They can't handle the as much iron and manganese. We've proven that they work. We struggle with uh, ISC to get them to understand we want biological systems in our first stations. We weren't getting approved for uh, those water plants at one time. But now in the last few years, they've come around and uh, approved these systems. In my communities, we are building biological systems, but we still struggle with uh, green sands where there's a couple of them that aren't being replaced that I don't know, I still feel that they should be. How about other challenges along the way? Have you had any really big challenges in your career? My challenges really don't stop. It's every day I have a challenge. It's uh, get them to bring up their certification levels because we still have operators that aren't fully qualified in their water plants where they should be, and they've been there for years. But uh, I gotta admit, uh, some of my biggest accomplishments were having these a couple longtime operators that weren't certified, and I finally got them certified. Maybe 15 years they were operators, but they didn't have no certification. Well, congratulations on doing that. Just so I mentioned before, I'm relatively new to Canada. I've only uh, been a permanent resident for, for almost a year, actually. But I'm sometimes, you know, some of the things that really surprise me are what's happening in the Indigenous and First Nations communities with all the water treatment, what's happening with the release of raw sewage press that you um, that your community is coming up with its with its own standards. You know, it's a resource-rich country, and we don't really think too carefully about what we're throwing in the water. And, man, I mean, I'm kind of blown away by these problems. Well, with those standards that are made up, I mean, that's a actually government thing. It's not really done up by a health. Health only has one vote. It's all the provinces that have the votes. So who's making the decisions when it comes to water quality? It's the government. Water uh, health issues are secondary. So one question I have for you. What about the younger generation? Are you, can you generate interest in the next generation of, of circuit riders? Well, that's, uh, actually some of the communities uh, a couple of years ago, they asked me to come in and actually teach uh, 
an hour or so with uh, students, you know, high school students, and it might be interested in doing a water plant. So I actually I was in three communities doing that. So well, because sometimes I do it start with an hour and I end up doing two or three hours because they really listen to what I had to say, and uh, you know, it's just building their interest. Also, with the Safe Drinking Water team, we have the foundation that has kits for uh, students that they can also uh, practice uh, some water quality and taking water samples. So, yeah, and we still right now, one of our big reasons for boiled water advice is are the cisterns because there are cisterns can't be, um, they're not really proven to work very well because we still have feces that are still getting into those, cracking and that's going on with those. Some of the things that they discover in, when they go do cistern cleaning, animal parts in there, you don't want to be drinking that water. So in our area here, we have boiled water advisories on anybody that's on those systems. That is such a tough way to live. Well, we're, we're pushing for uh, pipe systems to every house, but that's a big cost again, because houses are spread out so far. Your expertise is around, around that you know, the treatment plants and training operators and, uh, you know, federal funding and the design of treatment plants. And is it working? Are we resolving some of the problems? Are, are you finding solutions out there or are the problems getting worse? Well, with source water protection, I mean, it's a great thing that we're starting it because it's part of my job requirement to do source water protection, emergency response plan and maintenance plans. But I know in the past, other circuit riders that were there before I was, they weren't getting anywhere with the communities on doing source water protection. So that's why I've, uh, we've talked before about uh, me and you and trying to get in into the bands to start doing source water protection and seeing how important it is you know, to the community and also the quality of drinking water. Like inviting you to come out and uh, introduce it to the communities, it's a great start. It's moving. We're getting some. We're getting somewhere, you know. Because, like I said, it hasn't been. It, nobody wants to do it. It seems like. So I thought, well, maybe we'll try a different approach. And so that's why I said using you and also uh, the watershed on doing source water protection. Like I can't do everything. So that, uh, having your help, and uh, you know, we could do this together, and. We can now find different ways of doing it, especially at this time of, uh, with this pandemic going on, now that we, we talked about doing online uh, course for source water protection. So getting the word out there, I think, is probably the biggest thing. Communication. Communication is probably one of the biggest problems we have, uh, you know, in, when it comes to the water, because, you know, chiefs and councils, they're the leaders, they're the ones making all the decisions, but what do they really know when it comes to water? I mean, when I started this job, they didn't even know, understand who I was or what I was doing. You know, so I had to do an introduction uh, to uh, a big group of leaderships to let them know what I was there to do and help them improve. So like I said communication, teach our leaders, you know, and our administrators what the importance of the water plant operators are. Like I said, a big step for what we're moving forward with. So, guys, I'm wondering about the support of the federal government for your growing interest in, in source water 
protection? Are they supportive? Uh, is there funding? Or do you find that you're on your own? Well, they are supportive. It was a few years ago now that they asked that I develop a template, a framework model for, for doing source protection planning. So that is in place, and I'm still using it. I've been revising it quite regularly, but there is a federal government template 2013, and that's sort of what we've used um, in communities to kind of help guide the process. And that's that framework where you set up the committee and you go through the assessment and management actions and implementation. The framework is there. And there's funding that comes through to do source protection planning from the feds. The thing is, it's not expensive to, to develop the plan. The plan itself is not an expensive process. To pull community members together for, you know, half a dozen meetings uh, is not an expensive. What's expensive is the implementation. If you have to decommission uh, a landfill, it could be a million dollars. To decommission wells, a few hundred dollars per well. So the cost will vary, but that's where we need to source funding from the federal government to, to implement these plans. While we've been successful at developing the plans, the next phase of implementation has been tricky. Just to kind of, yeah, kind of elaborate on that, like, I know when I first started, we, the communication problem was still there. It's trying to have them to work with both and trying to, you know, communicate what we're trying to do. But, uh, like I was just kind of thrown into it without any uh, kind of knowledge or any background of what they were trying to do. So I didn't get any materials to help me out. So I was kind of just jumping into it. But being uh, around for the eight years now, I have come across where I got more experience of what's happening and how their approach is and how things work. And I think uh, they're actually... They're listening to a lot of my suggestions over the years and, you know, we've worked together on trying to do things. So communicating with them and trying to get things done, uh, yeah, it's it's actually gotten better in the past. But there is still people that are in the higher up positions that still have their opinions or their differences of uh, how they want to help First Nations, I guess you could say, because there's still some things that we struggle for to get even to get repairs done. You know, it doesn't really always happen that quick. Some of them, we still have delays on projects that are going on right now. So I commend you for, for taking this into your own hands, thinking about what you want for your community and setting your own standards. And we, we put um, source water protection, didn't we, Dion, into the association guidelines, into the new standards that the the First Nation Water Association will use. And to this date, the framework for source water protection doesn't exist in in provincial or even federal guidelines for drinking water quality. So again, you know, I think the association bringing those in and having those in your standards is really a great thing. And water, uh, uneven access to drinking water in this country is something most Canadians are not aware of. Living in cities and towns, we turn on the tap and we don't think about the health of our water, the safety of our water. And we don't have to because it is being looked after through a modern drinking water distribution system. But that's not the case in First Nation communities. And so many Canadians don't understand that or know that. So we have a water insecurity problem in the global north, so-called developed world. And it's our First Nations that experience that on a regular basis. When I first came to the reserve, uh, where my parents grew up, there were there still were houses with uh, no drinking water. There were they had to go out to the well and uh, haul it in. 
So having water at the houses was a convenience. So I've seen uh, people struggle with that over the years, also with the sewage systems that they had, you know. It's just amazing. So I have a colleague here who had to do that, and she's, you know, uh, younger than I am. And she talks about going out as a girl, you know, having to walk out on the ice into the river and fill a bucket with water and bring it back. It wasn't that long ago. I mean, we're probably talking about maybe 25 years ago. Well, Bob, thanks so much for being here. And Dion, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Jay. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you, Jay, for uh, inviting me today. Thank you. Our pleasure. Dion Hassler is a circuit rider trainer for the File Hills Capel Tribal Council. He's responsible for 11 First Nations bands in terms of technical services to mentorship, training, and assisting water treatment operators in operating and maintaining their systems and obtaining and maintaining certifications. And at the beginning of the show, we spoke with Bob Patrick. Dr. Robert Patrick is a professor in the Department of Geography and Planning and the chair of the Regional and Urban Planning Program at the University of Saskatchewan. Fifty-eight different drinking water advisories in First Nations communities in Canada. That number should be zero. And it will be in the future because of the action being taken by people like Dion and Bob, by starting the hard work and by seeing it through from start to finish, by protecting the source of our drinking water to make sure the next generation of First Nations water plant operators, technicians, circuit riders, and trainers are ready for whatever the future holds. Let's Talk About Water is produced by the Global Institute for Water Security at the University of Saskatchewan with the Walrus Lab. I'm your host, Jay Familietti. Thanks to everyone who helped put the show together, including Mark Ferguson, Laura McFarlane, Amy Hergut, Jesse Widow, Sean Ahmed, Nikki Manfredi, Stacey Dumansky, and our producer, Sean Perpick. As always, special thanks to Linda Lilienfeld and perhaps our number one fan, Marcy May, down in Southern California. We've only got two episodes left this season, so make sure you don't miss them by setting an alert so you'll know the moment a new one drops. Remember, we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and many other quality podcasting platforms. You can also stream us on Facebook at Let's Talk About Water Podcast or follow us on Twitter at LTAW Podcast. See you in a couple of weeks. Got 10 minutes? We know you do, especially for thought leaders like Biff Naked, Margaret Atwood, Desmond Cole, Amanda Paris, Andre Picard, and the list goes on and on. The Conversation Piece is a new podcast from The Walrus. Subscribe today and get new perspective delivered on the Acast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play.